with the hope and the peace that transcend all understanding. So we invite you today to renew our hope afresh. Help us to focus on you. And help us to fully embrace who we are in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Hope we're all doing well this morning. Uh, for those of you who are like, who is this guy? My name is Craig. Uh, we've been, my wife and my daughter and I have been coming here for a few years now, probably about four or five. And um, Pastor Zox and Pastor Caitlin uh, invited me to share the pulpit this morning. Um, I um, want to speak a little bit about, uh, out of a, an epistle that has been really meaningful for me over the years. Um, the epistle to the Ephesians um, has really, uh, at different times in my life, renewed uh, my sense of identity. It's renewed my, my hope. It's renewed my joy. It has given me um, inspiration uh, in times that have been really, really desperate, in times that have been really, really low. Uh, and the reason for that is because the epistle to the Ephesians, especially the first half, really speaks into this issue of identity, right? Who are you? Who am I? There have been times in my own ministry and in my own life in the past, uh, and times where I'll drift into that currently, where I will struggle with many of the same things that Pastor Peter shared before he left of why he was taking a sabbatical. Uh, as pastors and ministers, a lot of times it's really easy to get sucked into that trap, just like it is for many of you as you uh, engage in your jobs or invest everything into your families and all these things where we begin to forget who we really are. Right? And so the epistle to the Ephesians is one of those places for me that just anchors me, that reminds me uh, time and time again, this, Craig, is who you are. As I uh, was thinking about this message this morning, I was reflecting on one of my favorite movies, uh, The Born Identity. Anybody else like The Born Identity? <laughs> right? Love it. That is one of my all-time favorite movies. And the reason is not just because it's action, violence, destruction, right? Which all good God-fearing men and women love, right? It's because uh, at its heart, what the movie is really about is about identity, right? In the name, the born identity, right? It's about identity. And one of the pivotal scenes in the movie for me, which, always has, which has always stuck with me, that, that, uh, that is always meaningful to me in different ways, is the scene where he's sitting with Marie, the young woman that he has paid to take him to Paris, and they're sitting in the truck, uh, the, 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 the highway side uh, diner. You remember that scene? And they're sitting there, and, and Jason is sitting across from her, and he's trying to explain to her, you know, what's going on and just this dissonance that he has. And he says that line, he's like, I don't know, I don't know who I am. Right, you remember that line? But then it comes full circle at the end. At the end of the movie, if you remember near the end, he comes back as he is confronting his past and who he is and you remember what he says? He says, I'm no longer Jason Bourne. I'm now David Webb. 
right? Because in that moment, he realizes the power and the impact that this false identity that he had been living into for the past decade or more, how it had destroyed not just his own life, but the lives of so many people that he had killed and ruined. And he didn't want that anymore. And he said, no, I reject this false identity. I'm no longer this person. I'm now this person. And he moves forward into a new future, into a new way of being, because he chooses the identity that was his all along. I want to read the first chapter, first half of the first chapter of Ephesians, because to me, this here, Paul here does the same thing that Jason Bourne is doing to himself as he renames himself. He is going through the process of constructing new identity in the Ephesian church. And by extension, us, as he reminds us who we are in Christ. Starting in verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for the adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely has given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. I could keep reading. I, I honestly toyed this morning with just standing up here and just reading the whole first three chapters of Ephesians as my sermon and then just dropping the mic and walking off. Right? Because Paul goes on with even more imagery and even more detail about who these Ephesian Christians are. Right? Several metaphors that he uses. He talks in chapter 2 later about you who were far away, you've been brought near. You who were foreigners and aliens, now you are citizens. You who were formerly divided, you're now one new humanity. You are now being built into a holy temple where God lives. You are now the family of God. You are a building that Christ is building, right? It just goes on and on. And I love this, because Paul realized the same thing that many sociologists, many psychologists realize, right? That identity informs 
behaviors. You know the reason we say this mission statement, right? Christ community cause every Sunday, right? So it's like, oh my gosh, here it is again, right? We exist to be in Chicago and all of Chicago, hope that Christ and you know, right? Because it becomes for many of us a rote kind of thing that we just do. But what we're doing is actually reminding us every single Sunday who we are, how we have been called to be, what we have been called to do in light of who we are as new community, right? And so as dreary or as drudgery as, as it can be sometimes for some of us who just hate repetition, repetition is important because it solidifies this. And this is why I believe Paul goes to such pain, such lengths through the first three chapters of this book to remind the Ephesians, no, this is who you are. You were dead, but now you're alive. You were dead, but now you have been raised up in the heavenly places, seated at the right hand of God. You were this, but now you're something so much better, right? And he reminds us. In this first passage that I read this morning, he uses several images. And I wanna just focus briefly on three this morning. Three images that I think Paul uses here to cement the identity of these, this young church in Ephesians and Ephesus. And by extension, us as well. The first one is the image of adoption. He uses the image of adoption. In verses four through six, he says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. He has adopted us. Now here's the thing, we have the tendency just like all who've come before us to read this passage and especially to read this image of adoption through our own lenses of what adoption means, right? Some of us in here have possibly been adopted. Uh, Some of us in here I know have adopted other, other children, right? And there is a beauty in the process and a beauty in the imagery as we think about adoption from our perspectives, right? We have, just like Paul says what God has done here, actually chosen to love this child, right? A child that has no home, an abusive home, nowhere to go, nowhere to turn, whether they're a baby, whether they're 12, 13, 14. As parents, when we decide to adopt, we choose a child, to bring them into our family, to love them just like we would love our own naturally born child. And any parent of any adopted child would tell you they, they don't love with distinction. They don't love their, their, their own naturally born child more than they love their adopted child. Once they came in, once they chose them and brought them into the family, they were sons, daughters. Right? And they love them. But here's the thing. When Paul was writing this to the Ephesians, it was even more vivid, more dramatic, because he was writing into the midst of an abandonment culture. 
It wasn't unusual for parents to bring unwanted children into the Agora, the marketplace, and just leave them. For somebody either to claim or just to let that child starve to death and die. It wasn't uncommon actually in Ephesus for many parents simply to take their unwanted child out to the east gate to the garbage dump and discard the child with the refuse. This happened regularly. And Paul was writing into the middle of this abandonment culture where it was okay to say, hmm, you're imperfect, hmm, nah, you're not what I thought it would be, hmm, I can't provide for you, hmm, for whatever reason, I, I, I just don't want you. Next day, there's nobody there. And this is what Paul was writing into. Here's the thing, Paul tells them with this image, with this image that he's writing to this church in Ephesus in this abandonment culture, what he's telling them is that, hey, Ephesians, God has picked you out. He's picked you up. And he's taken you home. He's picked you out, he's picked you up, and he is taking you home. You are no longer an orphan, abandoned, sitting in the refuse, waiting to be picked up. You have been taken home. I wonder if some of us know what it's like to be or to feel abandoned. Or maybe, if not abandoned, either chosen, not chosen for something, or just left out, excluded, to be on the outside. I wonder if some of us know what it means to be abandoned by a parent, or possibly by a spouse, or to have children turn their backs on you and leave, to have a relationship end in a painful way, any number of ways where we feel this. I wonder if there are people who can identify with that pain here today. But what it means and what it feels like to to feel unwanted, insufficient, broken, rejected. It's painful. I fortunately haven't had that type of experience. But I know on little scales what it's, what it's like to be left out of groups of people, like all of us do, right? And even there, as it kind of cuts and hurts, I can only imagine how much more painful it is to experience a more significant type of abandonment. Right? Now here's the thing, as Paul is writing into this, into this culture, he has a ton of behavioral issues that he really needs to address, right? But you notice what he does in Ephesians, he doesn't actually dive right in, hey, stop cheating on your wife, right? Stop all the gossip. Stop acting like an idiot, right? Stop being racist. Stop being blah, 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 right? He doesn't just do that. He spends three chapters, the first half of the entire letter, simply saying, This is who you are. And what does he start with? He starts with this image of adoption. Why? Because he knows that this will powerfully communicate to these Ephesians and ultimately to us what it means to be in our new reality as those who believe in and follow Jesus. 
a um, story that I read some time ago about a pastor in Washington, D.C. area. The story of adopting uh, his brother by his parents when he's young just drives us home to me. He says in his memoirs, when I was a child, my minister father brought home a 12-year-old boy named Roger whose parents had died from a drug overdose. There was no one else to care for Roger, so my folks decided they'd just raise him as if he were one of their own. At first, it was quite difficult for Roger to adjust to the new home. Any environment free of heroin-addicted adults was odd. Every day, several times a day, I heard my parents saying to Roger, no, no, that's not how we behave in this family. No, 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 no. You don't have to scream or fight or hurt other people to get what you want, Roger. No, no, Roger, we expect you to show respect in this family. And in time, the pastor says, Roger began to change. Now, did Roger have to make all those changes in order to become part of the family? No. He was already part of the family, right? Simply by the grace of the mother and the father being willing to invite him in and make him their own. But he did have to do a, hard, a lot of hard work to learn what it meant to behave as part of the family. Just like those of us have been invited to do, right? Unless you're like me and you never make mistakes. Right? You know what it means to work hard on your character, on your behaviors, on your actions, on your words. Right? I can't tell you how many times I know you think I'm perfect and I just said that, but how many times Mary has just said, that was mean and hurtful? (laughs) What? That was rude. Right? (laughs) Just just yesterday, I remember I was in a a bad mental space, we'll just say, for a while. Right? And we're at a store and uh, we're looking for some stuff, and the salesperson basically just said, we don't have any of that stuff that you need, we can't do, I can't give you a comparison, blah, 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 and I'm just like, I'm just like, right, and I, and I do that, because I'm just, I'm at the end, I got nothing left. And I know I've been rude, right, I don't care, because <laughs> I just, you know, in that moment. And I look at Mary, sitting over there at Amaya, because Amaya's kind of looking at, you know, ma, ma, uh, Mary like, and, and I just kind of hear Mary whisper, that was so rude. She didn't even say anything to me, right? I was sitting there, I was like, okay. Okay, I'm sorry, so what now? And I start talking to the guy again, right? I'm just like, oh, right? It takes work. It just doesn't happen overnight. We make mistakes. But the beauty is, Even when we do, even when we make mistakes, even when we intentionally choose not to live into the values of the family, we have a God who has already made us part of the family and that behavior does not reject us or disqualify us. We're still part of the family and we're being invited by the Holy Spirit to begin acting the way our family does. Right? Which is how Paul describes things in chapters four through six. Do you have any hard work left to do yourself? I would imagine some of you do, because I know some of you. (laughs) Just kidding, right? But why do we make these changes? Why do we put in the work? We make 
the effort, we put in the work because we want to live into our new identity, our new place of belonging, not out of fear of rejection, but because we realize that we have been called to something better. Roger was called out of a horrible situation into a loving environment. Many of us have been called out of horrible situations into a loving, nurturing environment. Not a perfect environment, but one that will help us to become who God has designed us to be. Second image I want to highlight briefly is the image of redemption. Redemption. Paul says in verse 7 that you have been redeemed. I love this. I've always loved this. It's always been one of my favorite words in all of Scripture, right? Said about me that, that I have been redeemed. If you're like me, when I initially heard that word, I know it sounded really cool. I liked the idea of it, but I didn't fully know what it meant, you know? And most of us have a good idea, sort of what it means. Think about the, the, the culture in Ephesus, this, not just the abandonment culture, but the slave culture, right? This was ancient Rome. And you were either wealthy, you might have been one of the lucky few percent who were local business owners and were able to squeak by, or you were part of the slave-servant class. And the reason that you were a part of the slave-servant class was because you didn't have any other means to sustain yourself and your family. And so often what would happen would be you would go to somebody, to the market, to the slave market. Ephesus was actually one of the largest slave markets in the Roman Empire, right? You would go to the slave market and you would sell yourself for a period of time, often seven years, sometimes longer, depending on the contract, but you would sell yourself to become a slave so that you could care for your family. Now, if you served well at the end of your time, you would, if you had a uh, virtuous owner, be released Right? But here was the beauty of living in this awful slave culture. You could be redeemed at any time. If somebody or yourself managed to put together enough money to do this, you could buy back the freedom of the one who had sold themselves into slavery. Right? That was the process of redemption. Right? you could redeem somebody who was desperate enough to sell themselves to care for their families or to find a safe place for themselves, you could buy them back and set them free. This is an intentional image that God uses as, uh, or sorry, that Paul uses as the Spirit is leading and speaking to him to speak into the situation of the Ephesians. Hey, Imagine what it would be like as a slave was sitting in this Ephesians congregation, right, or one of the congregations in Ephesus. Imagine what the slave was sitting here like, hey, you're no longer a slave. You have been redeemed. You have been set free. You are not in bondage anymore. You have freedom and new hope. Imagine how that would feel for a slave sitting they didn't have pews back then, but, you know, on the ground or wherever they were sitting, right? Imagine that. I always reflect back on the moment that I 
realized for the first time I was redeemed and it always gives me chills because I realized the type of lifestyle that I was coming out of as a professional athlete, right? I was fully indulged in that lifestyle, fully given over to alcohol, drugs, parties, women, everything else that comes with it and I was carrying around a ton of guilt and shame. And when I realized that I had been redeemed and set free, it was incredible. I literally had what felt like, Charles Finney described this, any of you church history folks, in, the, in one of the great revivals in American history, like waves of electricity pulsing through my body from head to toe. I was literally laying in my bed and it was just like vroom, 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 over and over. It felt like it was like 10 minutes long, it was probably like 10 seconds, right? Just tingling and just with the incredible knowledge that God had just washed away every bad thing I'd ever done and had given me a new start and that all my shame and guilt was gone. It was amazing. Until a few moments later when I was like, because I, you know, I was new at this and I had, I'd said the sinner's prayer that I'd read out of one of the 80 tracks that my roommate had given me at this retreat, right? And, right? and I was like, yeah, Jesus, okay, yeah, yeah, give myself you right. And I realized in one moment, I was, I was like, I forgot to say I'm a sinner, oh, right? And I get back down on the edge of my bed and I said the whole prayer all over again, right? And then I got back on bed and I was laying there, I was like, okay, God, hit me, right? And I'm sitting there and nothing's happening. I'm like, oh my gosh, I blew it, right? I, I'm missing out. And then God in his mercy just kind of gives me one or two little more mini waves. And I was like, whew, no lie, this actually happened. But sometimes as we go further, memories fade and I, I need new reminders, right, of what it means to be redeemed. When my wife and I were urban missionaries in the LA area back around 2008, the economic downturn, right, we lost 80% of our funding within a six month period. I had applied for jobs, pastoral jobs, jobs walking the floor at Target. I, had, I applied everywhere and I could not get a job. And I remember thinking, God, what are you doing? And I was desperate, right? I took a trip to Vancouver. I was, uh, the last team I played for, for professionally in Canada was in, in Vancouver, the BC Lions. And so I had some connections there and the FCA uh, representative up there, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, got a hold of me and said, hey, we'd love you to come share your testimony. We've got this sports outreach that we're doing. Could we bring you up and you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, sure, you know, and I'm thinking, well, great. You know, I'll probably get a couple hundred dollars maybe for an honorarium. FCA is not rich, right? They're all support raising missionaries too, but hey, $200 is $200 and I get to go preach the gospel and visit family in Vancouver, woo, right? So I get there. A gentleman who has his own financial uh, investing and advising company picks me up at the airport, takes me to the golf course where this thing is happening, and we're just talking along the way. It's like an hour ride outside of Victoria. And I'm just sharing, the, sharing our story. He's asking me about it. I said, oh yeah, we know we're doing this, we're doing that. And you know, I'm just giving him little bits and he's asking specific things. I'm like, well, you know, we're having a tough time right now financially, but you know, we're, we're, we're pulling through and just, you know, waiting for God to open doors. We've got a couple options that I'm waiting on and you know, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, it's been, it's been challenging, right? And I just kind of sharing the story. I get to the event, I share the gospel, I share my story. I, I was sharing about overcoming and persevering, you know, through, through trials. And um, I share a little bit of our story that I'd shared with him there, but really, and, and I wasn't up there really just like, <laughs> it sucks, right? Oh gosh, please give me money, right? I was just sort of sharing, but, was like, but I, I really had a firm hope and still belief, even in the midst of my, of my disappointment, anger, and doubt, you know, with God, that he was going to get us through this, right? And I, so I left my message on that kind of high note of, man, you know what, but he is, he's done it, he'll do it, 
I'm feeling, you know what, I'm okay. So what happens is they take up an offering and they collect an extra offering. So they were giving me a $500 check, I found out. They took up a free will offering to give us another like $1,200. So I, I'm getting out of there with about $1,700 and I'm thinking, wow, God. Um, pretty, pretty cool, I'm feeling really good. I call Mary that night, she's like, oh, thank God, right? The next morning I wake up at the hotel, I'm checking out, and they say, oh, Mr. Hendrickson, there's a package for you. I was like, oh, okay, and it's just a little envelope. I, I get the envelope, I'm like, what the heck is this, right? I, I pull out this envelope, and all I see is this check with the, the, the numbers $10,000, written to me from Walt, who was the man who had driven me to the event from the airport, $10,000. I slid the, um, the, the, the check back in the envelope. I stood there. I pulled it back out and looked again. It still said $10,000. <laughs> I slid it back in the envelope and I turned around in the middle, and this was at a nice hotel, right? Down in the harbor in Victoria. Shut up! <laughs> the top of my lungs, that's all I can say. That's all I can think about, right? Shut up, are you kidding me? People are looking at me and I'm just like, sorry, right? sort of walk over. I call my wife, I tell her, babe, you're not gonna believe this. And she's, all I can hear on the other end of the phone is, ah, 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 I don't even know what she's saying, right? In that moment, as I am experiencing this incredible grace from God and this incredible generosity from his people that is basically saving us from the brink of, like I literally, I'm like, I don't know how we're gonna pay rent. I don't know how we're buying groceries. I don't know how I'm paying any of this stuff. I, you know, I am, right? He comes through in this unbelievable way with 11,700 unexpected dollars that carried us through for the next two months. In that moment, I remember thinking, I wonder if this is what it feels like to be redeemed, right? To be bought back from a desperate situation and to be set free. Because that's kind of how I felt. And I can only imagine just with that little bit, if I felt that good, how good it would feel for a slave in Ephesus to be purchased, redeemed, and set free with their entire life. So Paul uses this image of redemption to drive home to these Ephesian Christians just who they are and just what God has done for them. The last image that I wanna hit is the image of sealing, right? He says in verse 14, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your inheritance. You've been sealed. This imagery, right, in the first century, all slaves were sealed with either a tattoo on their neck or with an awl that was, you know, a piece of wood that was stuck through their ear. And that was a seal of the owner basically saying, you are my property, right? Any of you other, uh, sorry for those of you who are not action fans, but remember the movie Gladiator? Oh, yeah, yeah, another good movie, right? You remember Maximus had that tattoo on his arm, right? SPQR, and what that mark, what that seal meant was that he was a Roman centurion in service to Caesar. 
is what it meant, right? He was marked. Paul is writing into this kind of culture. They understand very much what it meant to be sealed, to be sealed as somebody else's property. And what Paul is saying here is, he's saying, he's asking them the question, do you realize that when you came to believe, do you realize that when you received God's call in your life, that you were sealed? That you received a new seal that said, you're his. Basically, God, through Paul, was whispering into the ears of the Ephesians, you're mine. You're mine. I've adopted you, and you're mine. You're mine. One of my favorite books that I read when I was a younger Christian was a book um, by Father Greg Boyle, who is the founder, he's a Jesuit priest and the founder of Homeboy Ministries in East LA. And he's been working there for decades with ex-gang members in the barrio in East East LA. And as he's working with these ex-gang members, they all have their gang tats, right, that signify which set they're a part of, right? where they belong, who they are. And as they come to Christ and as they have come to saving grace and knowledge of Christ through Homeboy Ministries and they have come together, right, there has been a moment for each of them where, you know, they, they, they've recognized and realized what these things really signify. And they realized as they try to move out and begin new lives that they are handicapped because these gang tats prevent many of them from getting jobs, right? People recognize them. They know what they mean. They, they, they prevent them from fully integrating back into a healthy lifestyle, being able to sustain themselves. So one of the things that Father Boyle has done is uh, put together a team of physicians who give their services for free, who use laser removal on these tats. Now, it's free, so it's not like it's not, on, not ongoing, right? But at one point, there were over 1,000 ex-gang members lined up on the waiting list to have their gang tats removed. And every one of them did it. Now, here's the thing. Even though it didn't cost, the way they described this process, and the, the, the gang members, the ex-gang members who went through this at the end was they, they said, well, you know, it kind of feels like hot grease on your skin. You know, it's, not, it's not like a, an easy, pleasant process to have tats removed by laser process, right? It's not, not, it's not pleasant. I know that if I think it's going to feel like hot grease on my skin, it's probably something I'm going to avoid. But these young men and women wanted this so badly that they said, I don't care how bad it hurts. I want this off so that the only seal I have is a seal of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because I'm washed clean. My past is behind. I can move into a new way of being, into a new life, free from all of that stuff in the past, live into my true identity as a new believer in Jesus. And so they do it. Imagine the feeling that these young men and women have as they look in the mirror for the first time and see that seal gone. Just the little scar that's remained. That's a reminder of who they were. But that is now a reminder of a time long gone as they live into their new identity. 
Think about this, conversely for us, we've each also received the seal of the Holy Spirit when we believed in Jesus. Each one of us, we were chosen and adopted by God. We were bought back from the enemy and we were sealed to remind us and the enemy who we are and whose we are. And what this does is sets us free to live a new life. As the band gets ready to come back up, here's what I want you to say. I want you to turn to your neighbor. I want you to say three phrases. I want you to say these to one another. First, I want you to say, he's adopted you. Say it again, he's adopted you. He paid for you. And you're his. One more time, he's adopted you. He's paid for you. And you're his. Now I want you to turn to me, and I want you to repeat this. He adopted me. He paid for me. And I'm his. He adopted me. He paid for me. And I'm his. Ben, come on back up. I want you to understand that this is who you are at your core. You are an adopted child of God who has been bought back from a life of bondage to sin and to death and who has been made part of a new family. This is who you are. This is your primary identity, not your house, not your job, not your spouse, not your kids, not your money, not any of your possessions. Nothing you do is who you are. Who you are is an adopted child of the king, bought back at a price, the price being Jesus' blood on the cross. And you have been made his loved daughter, loved son. This frees you to love God. This frees you to be loved by God. And this frees you to love other people well. Because you no longer need to act. You're no longer restrained by who you were. Right? When I remember that I'm loved, I serve and I love differently. When I remember who I am, I live differently. I no longer need to act selfishly to look out for my own interests. I no longer need to lash out. I no longer need to tear others down because I can be secure in who I am. I can also be secure in whose I am. I don't need to earn it. Knowing our primary identity as sons and daughters of God, bought by the blood of Christ, we will know the freedom that we long for, the freedom that allows us to truly live into who we are and who God intended us to be.